Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. So welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today we are discussing an important topic that often goes unnoticed and untalked about in surgery, and that includes family planning and fertility issues faced by residents and junior faculty. We've selected a panel of experts to educate us on these topics and hopefully give you a little bit of insight as to what you should know or at least think about. Joining us today are Dr. Emily Youngheim, an associate professor of OB-GYN and the chief of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Washington University in St. Louis, Dr. Melissa Levack, an assistant professor in the Department of Cardiac Surgery at Vanderbilt University, and Dr. Argavan Salas, an assistant professor of surgery at WashU. Thank you so much for joining us. First, we're going to want to hear a little bit about each of your personal stories regarding family planning, freezing of eggs, IVF, and infertility. Uh, Dr. Salas, you had a wonderful article in Time Magazine. Perhaps you can start and lead off the discussion. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, Thanks again for choosing to cover this topic. As you mentioned, I think it's not really addressed in a public fashion, the way that it maybe ought to be given how prevalent the issue is. My personal story um, basically is that I'm a single woman. Um, I'm now 39. I am a surgeon at Washington University in St. Louis. And um, so I went through the lengthy surgical training and um, that made it just challenging to find a partner. And, you know, when I was in my 20s or so, egg freezing was not really a thing. Um, the technology was not good enough. It wasn't um, something that was really done. So as I got older, you know, I, I took that. I was a medical student like everybody else. So I was aware that beyond the age of 35 is considered advanced maternal age and there's increased risk, you know, difficulty getting pregnant and then also um, potential for genetic abnormalities and so on with fetuses. So I became more concerned, obviously, like anybody probably would. But I didn't really do much about it um, because I kept thinking, oh, yeah, I'll meet somebody at some point and then we'll figure it out. And also, you know, I was still quite busy at that time when I was 35. I had just uh, or I started my I graduated from residency when I was 35 and then also started my fellowship. Once I finally got a faculty position, I started thinking, you know, I really probably ought to investigate some other options here and have some kind of backup plan. Because at that point, even if I met somebody, it would be almost like we'd have to immediately have babies um, if we wanted to have a family. And I didn't want that pressure. So that's when I started thinking about it. At that point, I was 36. And then I um, delayed, 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 you know, was in like the pre-contemplative phase for quite a while, about a year. And then I finally um, went to see a reproductive specialist. And um, I've now actually tried three different protocols for egg freezing. When I had written that piece in time, I'd only done the one for whatever reason, I've not been successful with any of those. So it's been a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of injections. And in the end, I, I unfortunately haven't been able to freeze any eggs. So that didn't turn out to be or has not really turned out to be a viable option for me. And that kind of brings us to where we are now. And Dr. Levak, you've also been in the public about your experiences as well. Can you share with us what you've been through? Yes, absolutely. 
So my journey through general surgery uh, was long, and then I did my cardiac uh, fellowship afterwards. And uh, much like many of the other women, um, I didn't meet the right person. And I happened to be out at brunch with a friend uh, during my research years in general surgery. And uh, she had asked me if I knew anything about egg freezing at that time because um, she was interested in, in doing it. And truthfully, I didn't know anything about it. And I kind of tabled that thought in the back of my head. And I thought at that point I was still young. I was 34. And then my life moved forward and I started fellowship. Um, and I started to really think about it. And I was at a meeting, a conference with other residents. And I happened to sit at a table with some OBGYN residents who um, started talking about it. And I asked them questions about what does it cost, what does it entail, um, and they gave me some really valuable information and put me in contact um, with one of the specialists at uh, the Cleveland Clinic where I was training, and I thought about it for a little while, and I decided that this was something that I wanted to move forward with in my life. Um, my journey through that uh, was um, I largely had to time it to make sure that I was able to still do my um clinical responsibilities, um, and so the timing was uh, a challenge for me, uh, but I had um, a very easy course. Um, it took me about two and a half weeks for the injections and for um, the harvesting procedure itself, um, and I froze uh, 26 eggs, um, and so they are, are sitting there. Um, I've now gone and taken a faculty position um, at Vanderbilt in cardiac surgery, um, and I recently met somebody. We're engaged. We're getting married next year. Uh, and so uh, the question now becomes, now that I'm 40, uh, how are we going to proceed with um, with our family planning? I wanted to ask Dr. Youngheim uh, about her personal experience with this. So, I mean, as you heard, it's all very difficult. Egg freezing really only became a clinically viable option, I would say, uh, in the last five years or so. I mean, as, you, as you've already heard from the other two folks, they only started to hear about this as they were uh, either in the, in the midst of training or, or completing training and still very, very busy with things. And we're just starting to get information as to how successful IVF is using those banked eggs. Um, and we're starting to understand that age at which you bank those eggs is important. And also the number of eggs that you're able to bank is important. So I may end up going all over the place, but it is difficult because I would say we're at a time where there's a lot of great information that you can freeze eggs, but there's not a lot great of great information as to what the outcomes are going to be. I think a lot of women who uh, go forward with this, it gives them strength and confidence that, and I think it's a great thing to do if you think you might want to have babies in your late 30s or 40s because we know that you will likely struggle. But it's hard because it's not necessarily a guarantee that things are going to work out exactly how you want them to. But I think any of us recognize that, that life doesn't ex exactly turn out how we thought it might anyway. So I would say it's just difficult talking about these, and it's really important to make an individual discussion and making certain that you're addressing the person's concerns and also addressing the fact that this is not a guarantee. Egg freezing isn't necessarily going to be able to answer everyone's fears or concerns, but it's it's tough. But uh, the good news is there are options to help people um, at least find some options for family planning and, and building later in life, late 30s and early 40s, which I think a lot of us never think we're going to struggle with when we're in the midst of training. I certainly never thought I would, but 
but uh, just given the nature of what I do, most of my patients are in their late 30s. Let's jump a little bit into the dissection of the day and we'll dive a little deeper into this entire process about infertility and, and just bigger issues. But before we do that, from a 50,000 foot view, when would you say we should start thinking about, you know, men and women about family planning, especially in this field of medicine, when you're very busy, you're in the midst of training, and it seems like you go from one stage to the next? Dr. Salas, let's start with you. So we actually just did two events locally here at WashU to discuss this very topic. Um, and we did it with the medical students, because um, if, if I'm honest, and if I reflect back on my life, that's when I think really would have been the time to start intentionally thinking about this, which is hard because for a lot of people, they're just like trying to figure out who they are um, and get through the craziness that is medical school. But at the same time, that's also when most people are likely to have kind of their peak fertility um, and also have some flexibility in their schooling, especially compared to when they go on to be residents um, and often have difficulty scheduling anything. Because one of the practical challenges, if they do decide to do any sort of you need any sort of reproductive assistance at all, whether it's to freeze eggs or embryos. There's pretty significant logistical challenges with that because you have to be available for ultrasounds and labs every one to two days for a period of about roughly two weeks or so. And these aren't able to be done, you know, say in the evening. They're actually typically done in the morning, but not early enough that you could go before you start a shift at the hospital, for example. I think logistically, it's very, very challenging for people um, who are residents and fellows and, and even quite honestly, faculty to do that, whereas medical students have more flexibility. This is my you know, non-medical opinion. This is just my opinion as a human that it seems like that's the time when both fertility is peak and flexibility of scheduling would allow people to do something if they wanted to. And then, of course, some people will want to have children at that time, and that's great. And some people will not want to have children at all. And that's great, too. Um, but I think it's important to just have some um, intentional reflection around what each person's goals are and how they think they're going to get there. And I, I personally think that thinking should start in medical school. What are your opinions on this, Dr. Um, I agree. I think that it's never too early to start thinking about it. If anything, I, I wish that I had thought about it earlier. Um, I know the technology wasn't quite there, but I, I really don't think that, you know, it's ever too early. There are lots of challenges. There are lots of time commitments that are involved with it. For me, uh, one of the things that it allowed me to do was to relieve a lot of stress and mental anguish about the fact that I felt like I was failing in this fast aspect of my life, uh, my my personal life. And by going through the process, it helped. Um, create some space in my head to allow me to say, okay, I have a backup option. Um, and, um, you know, it really helped me focus on work and um, gave me some peace of mind going through the process. So I, I don't think that, um, I think that having these conversations early um, and taking initiative um, can be very beneficial in a number of different ways. Dr. Youngheim, I'm in this position right now where it's it's stressful for me to think about this, um, wanting to have children in the future and where I'm at in residency right now. And the big thing is we hear a lot of information when you seek out this information, but can you boil it down to what are the key considerations when thinking about family planning or freezing your eggs and 
specifically one of the things that I find concerning is that you can see there's statistics. There is a study in the Journal of Women's Health in 2016 where they said more than 24% of female physicians had infertility. And then the success rates of IVF from some SART data in 2015 were, were disheartening. And so can you talk to us about the, the specific details of considerations as far as cost, viability, and, and things like that? I think just, uh, you know, again, to just um, harken back to what we heard from the other two physicians, things are evolving. And I really think we should think about future fertility and future childbearing almost as a preventative thing. Um, we do know mo- more about ovarian reserve and how it ties into um, how many eggs somebody might get at any given time if they were to consider egg banking. Um, and that we can get from a simple blood test and from an ultrasound. And that can be done, I, I would recommend if a, if somebody was going to do this, they would do it with a trained reproductive endocrinologist who can interpret that information for them and explain it to them and also talk to them about how time um, impacts our uh, potential for fertility and how they can use markers of ovarian reserve to understand, again, if they were to move forward with egg banking, how many eggs might they get? And at different ages, how viable would those eggs be with future attempts at IVF? And in the way I view fertility treatments, and I don't call them infertility treatments anymore, I call them fertility treatments because I do think that the treatments we have to offer can be seen almost as preventative treatments. Again, you know, as these women have talked already today about going in to talk about banking eggs, if you can do it, before you're in a situation where you are infertile or before you're in a situation where your fertile potential is compromised, it's almost a means of um, preventative medicine. Um, but as these women both spoke also, it does take time to do this. And in a lot of scenarios, it's not covered by insurance. Um, that's changing, which is terrific. Uh, and I think the more and more we talk about it, partic- particularly in the setting of um, female physicians, um, this may help get the ball rolling so that more and more people can have access to care, but it's tough. So just as um, the other two ladies spoke, it would be good to do this when you're younger. Um, how young? I mean, I'll admit I had a nightmare when egg banking was taken off as an experimental label that I would take my 10-year-old to get her eggs banked. So, you know, you've got to think about these things, but I think certainly if somebody's a medical student, um, that may be a time to have a, a, just a discussion with a reproductive endocrinologist, um, recognizing that many professional women do either delay ch- childbearing or even if they don't, they may want a child in their late 30s or early 40s when age alone is a concern that they could go in uh, as medical students and have a conversation with a trained reproductive endocrinologist um, talk about age's impact on fertility, and then also get some markers of their own ovarian reserve to understand where they sit. Also, perhaps have a discussion of what their benefits look like as a medical student. And maybe even when they're interviewing for residency programs or fellowship programs and faculty programs, taking a look and seeing what their benefits are, because there are more programs that are starting to offer egg banking as, an, um, as a covered benefit. Um, I think these are all things that we need to start thinking about. So, I, you know, I think the fact that you're, that everybody's talking about this today is really important. Um, we need more organized information on this for people to have access to. 
Um, as far as men are concerned, age can be a factor for men, but it's certainly not as extreme as it is for women. You know, if men are, are concerned, there are really easy ways to get a semen analysis to check to see what their um, what their sperm counts look like. Um, and, you know, for, fortunately for men, banking sperm has been a viable option for over 50 years, and it's pretty inexpensive and pretty easy to do. Dr. Alice, could you tell us about what the actual process was in general as far as your time and um, the sequence of events? So the costs, um, as I understand it, are fairly variable, but um, medications are not typically covered, even if your insurance will cover some things. And those can cost quite a a lot, like three to five thousand. My cycles all cost varying amounts of money because of a lot of different factors that go into it, um, including which medications you're trying. Like the first cycle that I did involved four shots a day which was quite a lot. And the cycle, ultimately, that's the one that I wrote about in the Time article, I think, went for 17 or 18 days of doing that. And usually what happens is, you know, and again, this is just my experience as a patient, but the ones that I've done, either we have timed it, uh, the start of the cycle, using oral contraceptive pills, um, which we did because I was traveling. I didn't do my um, cycles in St. Louis, even though that's where I live. And so to know, you know, kind of when I would need to be in California, we were using the pills to control the date of the cycle for two of the three. Um, and then once basically the cycle cycle was ready to start, we would do an ultrasound and labs to make sure everything looked okay. And usually around five or six days later, start checking for uh, more frequently for ultrasound and labs. And basically what we're looking for is to have a decent number of follicles that are growing to a, a specific size so that they're ready for retrieval. Um, and so how long the process goes depends kind of on what a person's response is. Um, you know, I think I was told initially that it would take usually 10 to 14 days for that to happen from the first day of injections to the date of retrieval. For me, it was quite variable. Like I say, that first cycle was 17 or 18 days, and then we had to um, cancel the cycle because the response was not adequate. And then the second cycle was even shorter, or was much shorter. It was like, I want to say around 8 to 10 days. I don't remember exactly. And that's because my response was just so poor, it wasn't even worth trying more. And then the third cycle, I think, was around 16 days, and the response was adequate enough that we did a retrieval. But unfortunately, despite having... um several follicles, only one of them apparently had an egg and it wasn't mature enough to freeze. Um, so that third cycle is most fresh in my mind because it was most recent. And that one cost me 15000 That sounds very expensive. <laughs> it only is very expensive. That was a thing that came up with our students as well um, when we had our sessions because, of course, students are taking on debt already for their education. And, and I get that stress and I didn't have any um, financial support for my family when I went to medical school. So I, I definitely get that. But what I told the students is what I really feel, which is that you can, once you're, once you kind of lose your fertility or once you no longer have high quality eggs, you never get them back. There is no amount of money that will give you that ability to have biological children. And so to me, because that matters to me, I I would if I if the technology existed, like if I were a medical student now, I would take out loans. I would figure out a way to get that money 
just do it. Because to me, it's worth it, even though like in their mind, it might not be because they're so young and, and they don't know what's coming. But from where I sit now, that's what I think, because once it's gone, it's gone. Now, of course, there are lots of other ways to have a family, um, including egg donors and um, gestational carriers and adoption. So it's not that you can't have a family. But for me, having a biological child is a thing that turns out is important to me which means I kind of played my cards wrong. So Dr. Young, one of the things that I would ask you is the, the, this is also, this involves more than just one person. Obviously uh, for us, it hit a little close to home as we, my wife and I were involved in fertility decisions and taking fertility medications in order to have one child. Can you talk a little bit about just the, the aspects for how does the, how does the partner go into this? How does this affect in terms of same sex couples, things like that? Because it's more than just one person in other aspects. So can you talk about a little bit about that aspect to it? Yeah. So one of the things you had asked me earlier was to think about different um, physicians who would come to see me, different professionals in different situations. And uh, I see a lot of women who are single and, um, you know, who've made the decision, maybe I'll go about this on my own. Maybe I don't need a partner. Maybe you know, finding someone that I, I want to raise a child with, it, it's not important. And it, so I think it brings up issues. This isn't just about biology. For some people, it's also about what's your relationship like with someone else? Do you have a relationship with someone else? You know, my, my couples who come in who are same-sex couples, a lot of times, I mean, they already know they're going to need my help. So maybe they come in at different types or maybe at different times, or maybe they've already had this introduction to banking eggs or using sperm donation or egg donation or gestational carriers. Um, but it does go a lot beyond the science. There's so many other factors that are involved. You know, one thing that I've been telling myself is that banking gets more and more successful and I see its success. When it first came out, I was quite nervous about it because I feared that I'd be seeing this, you know, all these young women coming in banking eggs, spending lots of money who may not need to use those. And it was a lot of money spent in medical procedures and exposures to things that might not be good. But um, just to speak to something that Dr. Salas said earlier, uh, you never get those eggs back. And one thing that I do think is true is I see how successful egg banking is now. Why would you want to risk having to buy someone else's egg, namely from an egg donor when you can bank your own and use your own or have that option available. And I think if you have the resources available, that is an option to consider. So it's just tough. It's a lot beyond the biology. Um, it's a matter of what resources people have available at different times. And it's not just financial, it's time. Um, and then also the aspect of um, whether or not we have a partner and, and whether or not that's important to us. And for People who, um, have, you know, when we're growing up, we all have certain ideas of what our life is going to look like 10 or 20 years down the road. And when things aren't going that way, sometimes it's hard to take a step back and think, okay, well, what are the things I really do want? And how is time affecting those? And, and the one thing that's tough is that um, time, you know, fertility is never going to win the time game. So let's talk Great. a little bit about myths out there. So I've heard forever that high-stress jobs, especially surgeons, have this high rate of stats for infertility. Can you tell me, is that something that's true or false? I mean, are are we more apt as surgeons or even in other high stressful jobs to be more likely to have problems with fertility? I think it depends on what you mean by infertility. I mean, certainly if we're under a lot of stress 
and it's affecting our sleep or if we have jobs that impact our sleep or if we're not eating properly and not taking good care of ourselves, that could certainly impact whether we ovulate or not. So I think stress can certainly impact whether or not we ovulate and whether we'll get pregnant on our own. Um, but in terms of ovarian reserve um, and oocyte quality and how long we make good quality eggs for, I think there's a lot we don't know about that. I There's a lot more data coming out on different lifestyle factors like diet, exercise, um, environmental exposures, those kinds of things that may impact ovarian longevity and fertility. But the bottom line is age is always going to be the biggest factor in that. Genetics probably play some role as well, but again, we don't know a lot about that. So, you know, I just think there's a lot of work to be done. And, and now that we are able to bank eggs and we do have different markers for ovarian reserve, hopefully we can start getting some meaningful research to help identify modifiable risk factors and modifiable things that women can do to um, improve the longevity of their fertility on their own uh, and their ability to conceive without medical intervention. So, Dr. Levak, wanted to bring it back to you as far as going through the process, and Dr. Youngheim can weigh in afterwards, but, you know, what are the risks to these um, treatments, what are the side effects that you experience with the hormone treatments and um, kind of the whole process? What are the risks and side effects that we need to know? As I'd like to add a comment as well on, um, on cost. So one of the things that was pointed out to me is that there was a, um, an employee discount uh, to go through uh, the hospital that I was training at. Uh, so that's something that I looked into um, when I was going through the process. And then there were also um, coupons available for some of the medications. So my total cost for my procedure uh, was roughly about $8,000 uh, between um, the, you know, with the coupons and everything. So just to throw that out there, that there are sometimes other financial um, things that can help uh, when you're considering paying for this. As far as side effects go, um, I truthfully, I don't know what um, what physicians counsel as far as side effects, but in terms of what I experienced, I really had very little. If anything, towards the end, I felt slightly bloated, um, but I never had any problems with the injection sites. I never really had anything that I noticed um, in terms of side effects, and uh, I never, with the, with the process uh, of the actual harvesting day, the procedural day, it was actually a very fun experience. I had a friend bring me in. She took pictures, um, and um, I woke up, and she drove me home. And um, so it was it was overall a very um, easy experience for me. I know that a lot of women don't have that same experience, but I, I never had any problems uh, in terms of side effects or anything. I would like to now bring it back to Dr. Salas. Um, I wanted to talk more about family planning in general surgery residency. Is there ever a good time? How do you counsel your um, your colleagues or your students, your residents in general, about parental leave issues and the challenges that uh, we face as physician residents? Yeah, it's definitely a huge challenge. And I think the one thing I've heard, regardless of profession, is that there's never really a good time to have children. Everybody feels like there's always too many things going on. Um, so to some degree, it's, it's a personal choice of, you know, when is right for me and my family as close to right as it's ever going to be and, and just kind of go for it. 
there certainly is immense pressure to not have children during residency. I, I think that's every woman's personal choice, right? Because it will, along with a partner, if there is a partner, um, because certainly that's physiologically the kind of the range of the years that we're in surgery residency from 26 to 33 encompasses kind of the main childbearing years of most women's lives. So I don't think it's reasonable to say you may want kids, but you have to have them after. And I, and I say that phrase in that we apply that to ourselves sometimes, you know, that I want kids, but I'm just going to wait until after because I don't want to stress anybody out. I don't want to burden my colleagues, et cetera, et cetera. But again, once, once your fertility is gone, it's gone forever. So I think it, people really ought to think about what their goals are for their family first and then the job second. Um, now, of course, there has to be support from the program. And I think that's something that, say, like the Board of Surgery, American Board of Surgery is working on. Um, and I think that the ACGME um, really needs to kind of step in here, too, because at many programs, if there is any sort of policy, it's under medical leave policies. And that's a totally different thing. I mean, medical leave is designed for rare occurrences and unusual things um, that might happen. But we really I think we need a paradigm shift because we really ought to be thinking that women trainees should have kids and and they can do it during the time that they're in training. So we have policies and procedures in place. So it's not a one by one. Oh, my gosh, what are we going to do now? Conversation, because that puts so much stress on the program and the individual. I think we just need to have policies specifically for parental leave. And I say parental, not maternal. So I think we need leave for both parents. Even if there are parental leave policies in place um, within residencies, some people may feel that they don't want to have kids at that time because of the huge number of hours they'll have to work afterward and, and feeling like they're going to miss out on on their children's early years. And that might be a time when they might want to consider something like freezing embryos if they have a person or you know know how they want to create those embryos. Um, because then they could save those for later and at least have a slightly higher quality egg to start with potentially. Um, that's just something to think about. And to follow that up too, I was just wondering with these frozen eggs, do they, are there risks to that potential fetus or baby that is born, um, from the freezing of the eggs or do they turn out to be normal births? We've got great data um, now, long-term data on outcomes from babies born from frozen eggs. Um, and, it, you know, that largest cohort of babies born from, from frozen eggs is, is no older than 10, but most of the data would suggest that they do just fine. One other question that I have is regarding infertility, um, Dr. Youngheim specifically, you know, we brought up the myth busting as far as, you know, the professionals, but in general, there's uh, statistics about infertility in women and the number of women that actually deal with um, fertility issues. And I think regardless of this being a conversation amongst surgeons and medical professionals, just can you talk about the rates of infertility so it doesn't come as a shock to those who are going through it? Yeah, I mean, again, I what's I think helpful to to recognize is it, it goes beyond biology. But when we're talking about so when you're talking about how infertility is captured 
now and how we report it, I mean, it's usually captured through survey data, and they'll say about 8 to 10 couples will experience infertility at some time in their life. But nowadays, so many people try to have babies or think about having babies or haven't had babies despite exposure, that data isn't necessarily captured. And I think particularly when you're talking about female medical professionals, you know, we have this sense of, I don't know, I mean, I'm 43, and sometimes I I think, gosh, where did my 20s and 30s go? Those are the years we're supposed to be, you know, biologically, uh, we're probably best able to have children. So I think it should really come to no surprise to us when we're into our our 30s and and might be struggling. Um, And I hate to say that because I'm certainly somebody who, Never thought I'd struggle. I thought I'd have as many babies as I wanted. But unfortunately, when you are um, spending those fertile years working away um, and maybe not needing a partner or not making time or uh, not able to focus on having children, it, it becomes too late for a lot of us. I think just as Dr. Salas mentioned, it's really important that we start making policies to think about these things, make it easier for people in their fertile years to have children. Um, and I think thinking of this um, concept of egg banking and uh, even just a fertility consult or a discussion as a reprodu- with a reproductive specialist is uh, somewhat of preventative medicine so that we don't struggle with infertility when we're ready to have a child are, are things we need to start thinking about. So that paradigm shift that Dr. Sellis mentioned, I think these things are really important to start discussing as, as medicine becomes more complex, um, as training becomes more prolonged. Um, given that complexity, it's really important that we make space for important life events to happen. So obviously, this is something that we couldn't go into all the different aspects. We just wanted to open people's eyes and ears as to some of the maybe less talked about issues. So for the three of you, from everything you've experienced as women facing these concerns and also as physicians, what final words of advice would you like to give our female and male listeners about this issue? Dr. Liebeck, we'll start with you. I would recommend that, um, as we mentioned earlier, that you start thinking about it uh, early and get that consultation, uh, speak with friends, um, see. It's amazing how many people open up once they know that you've been through the process or you start to talk about it, how many other people have been through the process, too. Um, and it's just not talked about very much. So I think it's important to to plan ahead. And um, and to reach out because there are resources and people are willing to talk about it. Dr. Salas. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to mention, because it never really occurred to me until after I went through all this, is that our bodies do give us feedback as to what's going on with our reproductive capacity. But many women in this day and age have either IUDs or um, birth control pills that they're on, and so that feedback is blunted. So I know for me, when I finally took the step of seeing a specialist um, and had my hormone levels checked, my levels were, you know, not promising. So, but I've been on a pill for 20 years because of ovarian cysts. And so she said, well, we can stop the pill and then recheck your levels. So here, and I stopped the pill in January 
of that year. And then my, you know, withdrawal bleed, but I didn't have another period until April. And then I didn't have another period until July. So it's hard to know, you know, if I hadn't been on the pill, were my periods already starting to space out if they were left natural? And would that have been a signal to me that, oh, gosh, like my fertility is changing um, for the worse and I had to make efforts like pretty much quickly, you know, but I just didn't have that feedback. And I, and I think that's something for many of our, our trainees to keep in mind, because, again, most people now are either have an IUD or on a pill. And then the other last thing I wanted to mention, um, because people seem to be surprised when they hear this number, is that even with all the scientific progress that's been made, still the efficiency to go from a frozen egg to a live birth is only six to eight percent. And that's why the number of eggs that people will tend to freeze, especially women who are in my age group, needs to be pretty high in order to have a decent chance of um, having a baby. Dr. Young, yeah, uh, just to echo things that both Dr. Levac and, and Dr. Sell has mentioned, talking more about these things, making it more normal to discuss having children, that being a desire. I am somebody who, when I was in medical school, I loved the concept of pregnancy and um, childbearing so much that I went into OBGYN and reproductive medicine. And I've, I've been accused of being biologically biased. I recognize not everybody wants to be um, a parent. Not everybody wants to be pregnant. But for those of, of us who think that that might be important to us, um, speaking up about it and, and making it normal to make room for that, make time for that, make space for that, the more and more we talk about these things and, and make it more normal, um, we'll be able to make that paradigm shift, shift that Dr. Sella has mentioned where we can make space for it. And uh, I would also, you know, being a biologist at heart, I, I agree that our bodies do give us great signals. But as an OBGYN, I always like to say we don't have to have a period if we don't want one. We can we can take that pill, but recognize there are great, easily obtainable markers now um, that we know more and more about so that AMH value, that blood test, a pelvic ultrasound to get some marker of what our, our ovaries look like. They don't tell us wh whether we're going to get pregnant or not, but rather they tell us if we're thinking about egg banking, how many eggs might we get? So that paired with age, which we know is very important, those are things that can be really helpful pieces of information as we're thinking about our future and whether or not egg banking is for us. Um, and again, the more and more we, t we talk about these things, Perhaps they can be part of preventative medicine, and perhaps we can change um, conversations also about coverage and, and make it accessible for people when it might actually work and work well. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your experiences. Until next time, dominate the day.